0: I have a question to ask you guys. Um, you guys may or may not have noticed. I haven't uh, preached a, a series in a while. Um, did you get? Do you guys miss the series when we would go through a series and then we'd have a handout? And you guys miss that, or do you like the individual spontaneous messages better? I like the larger. The, the larger. Um, okay. Format. Okay. Just me though. Well, that's a. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that's, um, that's good, because we're going to go back to a series today. <laughs> um, yeah. I was actually uh, praying about what what to preach this week, and um, what I wanted to preach, I was going to try and do this big message, and then I was like, man, that would be a lot of information to try to shove in one setting. Um, so I want to kind of go through it, and uh, go through it slowly. Um If you have your Bibles, I don't know the page number, but um, it's uh, John chapter 4. We're going to start in John chapter 4, verse 1. The Gospel of John chapter 4, verse 1. So what I want to do, probably all the way up through into Easter, is I just want to talk about people that come into contact with Jesus. Because I think sometimes we forget and we get so wrapped up in... Christian living or application or, you know, what is our responsibility, what our response should be, what we should do and what we shouldn't do and how we should live and how we shouldn't live. And we get so caught up in the parameters and the peripherals of Christianity that we don't realize the focus of Christianity. The focus of Christianity is Jesus. Plus or minus nothing, it's Jesus. And I think sometimes we can get so caught up in the details you ever heard that saying that you lose the forest for the sake of the tree? And I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that the forest is nothing more than a compilation of trees. It's all about one thing. What makes a forest? A bunch of trees. What makes Christianity? A bunch of information contained in the sole person of Jesus. So everything in Christianity revolves around this center of, of Jesus. And I don't want to be all in orbit and miss the focus. So what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through these next coming weeks and we're just going to pick out different people in the Gospels that have an encounter with Jesus and come away changed. And so in John chapter four, there's a woman and she comes into contact with Jesus and it changes everything about who she is. So before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask you that you take this message this morning and that you bless it and that you transform and change it and mold it so that it pierces the hearts of everyone listening. Lord, I pray that you use me as a vessel to communicate the truths of the Word of God. Lord, not that what I would say goes forth, but what you would say. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that this Word is anointed and that it is a blessing to the people that hear it. And I pray that just as the people that encounter you throughout the Bible are changed and transformed, I pray that this morning we might encounter you as well and leave changed and transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, In John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now look, as we walk through this, I'm just going to stop and I'm just going to point out some things. So here, Jesus is accomplishing a lot. He may not be baptizing anybody, but his fame is growing. The Pharisees, which is the religious sect of the Jews, begin to notice that he's baptizing or people that are following him are baptizing even more people than John the Baptist. And so there's a competition and a rivalry. And just as they were upset with John the Baptist for upturning and breaking the system and the boundaries of the system, they start to begin to get upset with Jesus. So Jesus doesn't stay. He just kind of picks up and shifts focus and goes to another place. And I want you to understand the prevalence of this because Jesus throughout his ministry is not concerned with his earthly fame. He's not concerned with the numbers. He's not concerned with the masses. He's not concerned with being famous and being known throughout. How many times throughout the Gospels does Jesus say, Go and tell no one. Just show yourself to the priest and follow the law of Moses. Don't tell anybody that I healed you of blindness. Don't tell anybody that I made you walk again. Don't tell anybody who it was that you encountered that made you able to speak. Don't tell anybody. Just go about your way and do your life. Because it wasn't about the numbers to Jesus. It wasn't about the metrics. It wasn't about how big of a mass was following him. In fact, it was almost like every time he had thousands follow him, he would say a hard truth and cause everybody to leave. He had hundreds of people and he said, if you don't drink of my blood and eat of my flesh, then you cannot be my disciples. And they're like, who is this guy? And so they leave and then the 12 are standing there and he's like, are you not going to leave also? And that's when Peter says those famous words like, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So it's, Jesus is not concerned about this. He's not concerned about the numbers or the fame or the popularity. He's not even concerned about the competition like, oh, look at me, I'm baptizing, or my followers are baptizing more people than John. That's not what it's about. So he's like, okay, we've gained traction here. They've noticed. Let's go somewhere else and do it again. And he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour is just about noon. So look, geographically, he didn't have to pass through the town of Samaria. It was just as easy for him to go around. It may have even been easier for him to go around. Because Samaritans didn't like Jews. Jews didn't like Samaritans when the Babylonian captivity came through and they took the Jews out, the Jews that remained kind of bred with the Assyrians and they were like a lesser breed in the Jews' mind. So the Samaritans didn't like the Jews for thinking that they were less than. And the Jews didn't like the Samaritans because they thought they were less than. They had different rules about, you know, religion, as far as, is Jehovah the one God, is, you know, should we worship Him in Jerusalem or can we work up worship Him here at this mountain in Samaria? And so there was a lot of contention and confusion about whether or not the Samaritans were actually part of the Jewish people or if they had been kind of excommunicated. And so there's a lot of tension there. But Jesus must pass through Samaria, meaning that He had a divine imperative to pass through Samaria. And the reason that he does that is for the sake of the person that he's about to meet. At least that's my belief. That's my interpretation If geographically. He doesn't have to pass through, but it says that he does. Then the reason that he chose to pass through was for the person that he was going to encounter here and for what was going to fall out from that. I also enjoy the fact that it says wearied as he was from his journey. See, we look at Jesus and we think this is the son of God. So he can't possibly have the same limitations and temptations that we have because he was divine, right? He was deity. And there's a popular theological phrase you have, he was truly God and truly man. And others say that he was fully God and fully man. What we can't actually understand is how exactly he limited himself from being divine But we know that he never ceased to be God. He never ceased to be divine. He never ceased to be a deity. But somehow he chose to put limitations on himself so that he would not operate in the same abilities that his deity did. So that he was subject to the same temptations we were. So that he was subject to the same human limitations that we were. So that he got tired just like we got tired. He got physically hurt just like we physically get hurt. He got emotionally wounded just like we get emotionally wounded. He was a full, true man. And sometimes that helps because we look at the things that he does and we look at the things that he says and we're like, nobody could do that. But he was A full man. He was a true man. So everything that Jesus did, we as Christians have the same ability because Jesus did not do these things to just do them once and for all to prove that he was the Messiah. He did these things to show what a person filled with the Spirit of God can do. So Jesus healed people. Someone that is a Christian that is filled with the Spirit of God can operate in that gift. Jesus shows us that. That's confirmed through the epistles in the New Testament. Everything that Jesus did is available to us to do as well because He is our example. That went over like a herd of turtles. (laughs) Let's keep going. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. A woman from Samaria. Listen, right from the get-go, this woman had nothing going for her. I mean, you think about, and even in our culture... Our, you know, we got to bust the glass ceiling culture. Women have it a lot harder than men do in a lot of cases. I mean, I know that there's all kinds of opinions on that. But women, as far as jobs go, as far as pay goes, you can go through that whole thing. And I'm not trying to be a feminist and wear it out right now. But what I am saying is women face problems that men never face. That's just a that's a true fact. Women face problems that men will never face, especially When you get into religious circles, women face problems that men will never face. So if you think about our modern, post-modern society, if that's still an issue, imagine what it was like in this patriarchal society, where in a lot of cultures, women were deemed as property. I mean, I know that that's a difficult pill to swallow, but it was the truth. A lot of cultures at this time dealt with women and viewed them as property. They viewed them as less than men. Men could get education that women couldn't. Men could get jobs that women couldn't. Men could do things that women couldn't. And so this woman comes out, and she's already limited and has nothing going for her just from the fact of being a woman. And here sits a rabbi or a teacher or a priest, however you want to look at that, She has nothing going for her. Nothing that would enable her to have a conversation with him. And then you add on to the fact that she's a Samaritan, which Jews typically acknowledge as half-breed. She literally has nothing working in her favor. But Jesus chooses to initiate the conversation and says, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. And then to just reiterate the point, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And then Jesus answered her. And I want you to remember this this phrase. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is, that is saying to you or who it is that is speaking to you see what we don't understand is Jesus is the gift of God and so what he's saying here is if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you then you would be asking for things from me you would be asking for me to give you living water you would be asking for me to give you eternal life you would be asking things from me the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? See, in the previous chapter, and we've talked about this before, in Nicodemus, when Jesus starts talking about the new birth, he's like, How can a man be born again? Does he enter into his mother's womb a second time to be born? And Jesus is like, No. You're talking about natural things. The same context of that is the same thing the woman does here. She's still thinking about natural things. And so often when we get a spiritual truth from God, our mind goes right back to the natural. God says, I want you, and I use this example a lot. It's not because I'm like bragging on what faith and I did, because I'm not. But we picked up and sold everything to move to Mississippi. We moved here before our house was closed on in Tennessee. We were living in the house that we have have yet to purchase before it closed and the devil fought us the whole time in the natural the things that we did and the decisions that we made were absolutely stupid I mean a lot of people even told us along the way that's stupid to do that but God worked on our behalf and so often what we do is God tells us To speak to somebody or to evangelize to somebody that we think they're not going to listen to us. Look at the way they're dressed. They're not going to listen to us. Look at the way I look at who I am. Look at the things that I don't know or somebody tells us to lay hands on somebody and pray for them to be healed and we're like, well, God, I've never laid hands on anybody and prayed for anybody publicly. How am I supposed to do that? Because every time God communicates to us spiritually, we want to turn it back to the natural. Every time God wants to communicate that He's our provider, the Word says it over and over again that God is going to provide for us. He's going to take care of us. Look at the lilies, how they neither toil nor spin, but they're arrayed more beautifully than Solomon in all of his glory. When we look at those things, we look at the birds of the air. They don't have barns. They don't store up food, but yet they never go hungry because God provides for them. Jesus communicates all of these things, and our mind goes right back to the natural. Well, I didn't get paid enough this week. My finances just aren't adding up this week. Or... We get a bad report from the doctor and we're like, this just doesn't line up with God being my healer. And our mind just wants to stay planted in the natural when God is trying to communicate a spiritual truth from us. And that's exactly what this woman is doing. That's exactly what Nicodemus did in the previous chapter is God's communicating something spiritual to them and they can't get out of the natural to understand it. He says, I'll give you living water. And she's like, well, you don't have a bucket to draw water with. It's like, that's not what I'm talking about. That water's not living. It's just water. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? See, this is where we always come back to. We come back to our earthly heroes. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And we don't really understand this because we don't live in that culture where genealogy is everything. So we have our American idols and our celebrities and that kind of thing. So it's kind of like the equivalent of saying, we're let me offend a bunch of people here are you greater than donald trump i mean that's kind of the equivalent of are you greater than george washington i mean he was one of the patriarchs that founded this country are you greater than thomas jefferson like that's kind of the thing that she's going for here are you greater than the very person who we trace our genealogy back to as the patriarch are you greater than him because he planted a well and used a bucket to pull water from and he drank from this water so he was limited by this natural thing so are you saying that he's greater than that and the truth is that's exactly what Jesus is saying just like they pull back are you greater than our father Abraham are you greater than Moses are you greater than Jonah are you greater than Solomon it's always pointing back to a hero that they had and Jesus is every time communicating yes Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then, of course, she says, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's still going back to the natural. Because even when we begin to see that we have need of a spiritual truth, our mind just wants to come right back to the natural. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, what I'm going to give you, being the Holy Spirit, is not just going to be for you, but it's going to be for everybody that you come into contact with. Because what I'm going to give you, not only will it be eternal life for you, but it will be overflowing in you, and it will have the ability to reach everyone around you. See, as a Christian... When we have the Holy Spirit, when we're in relationship with Christ, we should be, it shouldn't be a labor or an effort for us to share our faith. We should be sharing our faith without even trying because our lives should reflect our faith. I love that quote, and I know people have problems with it, but it says, at all times preach the gospel and if necessary use words. What that quote actually means is like, hey, you never have to preach the gospel with your words. What it means is your life should be lived in such a way that people are going to seek what it is about your life. And then you'll have the ability to use the words to tell them. Our lives, we should have a joy that others don't have. When the world's caving in around us, we should be able to go back to that well of joy, that well of life, that well of hope, and be calm in the midst of a storm. We should be able to come back and know that when the finances don't add up, we can hold our hands up high and our heads up high and say, Jesus is my provider. So even if I lose everything, I'm not going to die. I'm going to be held strong and held fast in His hand because He is my provider. Regardless of what goes on, Jesus is all I need. We played that worship video a while back, Waymaker. And that guy, I can't think of his name, the one that was singing the song, he stops and he's talking and gives a testimony about how he learned true faith. And it was when his mother was crying, they were about to lose their home. And he kind of pauses and says, you guys have heard my testimony, you know I've been homeless before. And he said we weren't going to be able to pay the bills and one late one night I heard my mother crying so I went to check on her and the door was cracked open so he just pushed it open a little bit further and he said the crying that he seen wasn't the crying that he thought it was because he thought she was crying and was upset because they didn't have the money and they were going to lose their home but what she was actually doing is she was crying and rejoicing because she said even if I don't have the money even if I don't have a home even if I don't have any of this Jesus you are all I need if I had Jesus I always have enough. And so when we talk about this well of living water inside of us, what that does is that regardless of what's going on on the outside, there's something in the inside. The Holy Spirit urges something in the inside so we can turn inward and we can say, even if everything fails... I have Jesus and that's all I need. I have the Holy Ghost who gives me intimate contact with the Father and that's all I need. I don't need the money, even though it's nice. I don't need the house, even though it's nice. I don't need those things because I have Jesus and He's going to bring me just what I need. And I've given this testimony before, but it's one of the most powerful moments of my entire life up to this point. When Faith and I knew that God was telling us that we weren't supposed to to have childcare. We were supposed to have her stay at home with the kids when they were born. So she quit her job, not knowing where the finances were gonna come from, knowing that I didn't make enough, and we stepped out in faith. Don't take this as a praise us because we always step out in faith because there's times that I struggle too. But we stepped out in faith and one week came and we had enough money for the bills or we had enough money for food. We were going to just say, okay, no bills. And we were going to get ourselves some food. But we felt like God was urging us to go ahead and pay the bills. So we did that. And there was no food in the fridge. There was no food in the cabinets, except, you know, you have like the can of like pinto beans that goes with nothing. And you're like, okay, well, if I have to, I'll crack this can of pinto beans open. But that's really all you got. You know, you got ketchup and mustard in your fridge, few condiments, a few cans, but you don't really have food. And then we get a knock on our door and a couple walks in, and in their hands, they had bags of groceries. We hadn't called them, We hadn't raved about our problems, and we're stepping out in faith. They come in, they set the groceries on our kitchen island, and they pull out $200 and hand it to us. Not knowing that the $200 that they had just handed us was going to make my car payment for the month that we weren't able to make because we couldn't pay all of our bills see that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this well of life I'm talking about the ability and the assurance that knowing that even though everything doesn't add up God's still our provider Hmm. so she says sir give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water And what's so funny about her coming right back to the natural so that I won't have to draw water is we see things like that happen and we're like, okay, great, God, you performed a miracle. Now, when am I going to get this pay raise at my job so that I don't have to go through that again? Or when am I going to get the opportunity for a different job so that I don't have to go through that again? You see what I'm saying? Is I got to the point knowing that my finances weren't enough each month to make sure that our bills were paid and we had groceries. And we got to that point to where I had to make a decision so we went ahead and we stepped out in faith and it got to the point where somebody had to bring us groceries and money to so that we could pay our bills and we could buy groceries. And no, we hadn't made any stupid purchases that month. That was just where our finances on a monthly, month-to-month basis had left us. Because, you know, when you're going week-to-week, four-week months are okay. But when that month comes that has five weeks in it instead of four, that can be a son of a gun. Anyway... So instead of saying, well, God, we were in this position where we didn't have enough and you provided, our mind goes right back to the natural. I'm like, okay, God, you provided. Man, that was an awesome one-time miracle. So where is my raise going to come in? Or Where is my new job going to come in? Or where is my physical, natural circumstance going to change so I don't have to rely on a spiritual provision? Because when we get the spiritual provision, we want to go right back to the natural. It's like, okay, natural, 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 miracle. Okay, let's go back to the natural. It's, like, it's almost like God's trying to raise us up to another level of faith and another level of relationship and dependence with Him, but we can't accept that, so we just plummet right back down to earth. And then He tries to raise us up again, and then we just plummet right back down to earth. The truth of the matter is, is God's wanting to lift us up to a whole new level so that we can do things like the Apostle Paul, when he's just like, you know what, I'm just going to go in faith, and no matter what happens, I'm going to rejoice. I'll be in prison, chained to a wall, rat infested in just an awful, awful Roman prison. I'll start singing at midnight. And you know what? The jail will open up, the chains will fall off, and I have a free route to escape. But you know what? I'm just going to stay here and keep singing. You know, we talk about that story. I don't know where this came from, so hopefully somebody needs it. But Paul and Silas, when they were in prison, began singing at midnight. And they're singing pushed off onto the other prisoners. And the other prisoners joined in with them. And they were singing and the doors opened, chains fell off. So much so that the jailer who had fallen asleep, like the good jailer that he was, when he goes and checks, he sees the doors open, he's going to kill himself. Because he knows he's going to be executed anyway or perhaps tortured or whatever because of the Roman government and punishment system at that time because he had just lost the prisoners that he was charged to keep. So he's going to kill himself, but Paul shouts and says, don't do that. We're still here. All the prisoners are still here. And if you think about a Roman prison, do you think that every person in that Roman prison was a Christian to start out with? Absolutely not. But when they seen the singing and the rejoicing of Paul and Silas, and they seen the doors open and them choose to stay, And they've seen the jailer who was going to commit suicide but doesn't because of Paul and Silas. And the jailer that then takes them and cleans up their wounds and brings them back to the prison. Him and his whole family get saved. And do you think that all the prisoners left being Christians? I don't know. I mean, I would assume that after you've seen that much power of God and that much faithfulness and that much Christian character, that you'd be like, man, I want whatever they've got. But it doesn't give us an account. It just speaks about the jailer and his family. But that's the kind of well in us that I'm talking about, is that there's such an inward power of God inside of us that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the world crashes and burns around us. We can walk through it with a smile on our face. It doesn't matter if hell itself bears its teeth against us. We can walk through life with a smile on our face because we know that God is for us. That's such a prominent truth, that Jesus loves us and God is for us. See, as we go through this series and we're talking about encounters with Jesus, the one thing that I want to be prominent is that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, you're in children's church growing up. And you start out, you know, as soon as you get out of the nursery, they may even tell you in the nursery. But as soon as you get out of the nursery, you go into children's church, you're doing your coloring pictures, your Sunday school lessons. And every time, the theme is always centered around the same thing. You know, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And what's so funny to me is all the way through children's church and into youth group, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. But then as soon as you get out of that and you come into the sanctuary, into the adult portion of the church, it's like they do everything they can to convince you that he don't well, you're not good enough, you don't keep those laws, do this, don't do that, you hardly ever hear people just say, Jesus loves you. It's almost like you begin to grow up and you picture Jesus loves you and then you come into an adult church and it's like, now Jesus is ready to backhand you. It's like, like, well, I thought Jesus loved me. It's like, well, that's kid stuff. Why? Why is that kid's stuff? To me, that's the most prominent truth in the entire Bible is that not only is my God almighty and all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere present and the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end and the first and the last and He who is and who was and who is to come. Not only is He all of that, but then He chose to confine Himself to mortality for a moment so that He could pay the penalty for our sins, fulfill the covenant that we failed, but then... He did all of that, but now He wants relationship with us. Why? Because He loves us? See, to me, that changes everything. See, a God that's amazing and beyond all comprehension and beyond all power is a wonderful truth. I mean, that's that's awesome. The God we serve, no other God like him. No other God can stand. Hell itself can't do anything. Evil has no ability to stop him. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, because he is God. That's amazing. But what he wants to do and what he chose to do are even more amazing. And then you add the why he chose to do it. That just goes beyond all reason. That he wants to save us and redeem us. He wants to have relationship with us. And he wants that because he desires us. He delights in us. He loves us. That, to me, changes everything about who God is. That God loves us. That God is for us. That God paid the penalty on our behalf. That is Christianity. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. So what you have said is true. I love this next verse. It cracks me up every time. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, duh. (laughs) I mean, go call your husband. I don't have a husband. Yeah, you've had five and the one you have now you're not even married to. It's like, yeah, somebody starts reading your mail. I perceive that you're a prophet. Congratulations for stating the obvious. So I said this woman had nothing going for her because she was a woman and because she was a Samaritan. Now she has even less going for her. Because not only is she a woman and she is Samaritan, but now she is a sinful Samaritan woman who has not only been married and divorced, 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 but now she's with somebody that she's not even married to. And in this culture, that's not even taboo. That's just beyond taboo. That is just wicked in this culture. But you know what Jesus does? He doesn't start beating her up, throwing rocks at her. He doesn't reach down and pick up a stone to kill her. He just continues the conversation like, that's just another step on the way. She says, "'Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, "'but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship.'" Then Jesus says, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain "'nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father.'" You worship what you do not know, for we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. All right, pause for a second. So, even though the sinful background of the woman was brought up, That doesn't become the focus of the conversation. The focus of the conversation goes back to worship. And he's talking to this woman about worship. So this woman who would never have been allowed in the synagogue for a plethora of reasons. Well, that was interesting. For a plethora of reasons, he's carrying on a conversation with her on how to worship God. See, in the Jews' mindset, this woman wouldn't have been worthy to worship God. She was so far beyond worthy to worship God that it's not even any longer a question of, eh, maybe it's not a gray area, it's just a complete black area at this point. But Jesus continues telling this woman the paradigm of worship is shifting. And see, it's so important that we begin to understand this because see, up to this point, you may have noticed we're, it's kind of climbing a ladder. And a lot of people don't take a step back from the passage and look at this. But John, at the end of the book, he says, All of these things have been written so that you may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that you may believe on him, and that believing you may have eternal life. That's the purpose of him writing the entire gospel. So, the purpose of him writing this narrative fits into that grander purpose of the gospel. So, what he's doing here is he is creating an avenue to where you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is come to save us from our sins and that believing on him, we might have eternal life. So watch this verses one through five. He's not into the social. He breaks past the social and the popularity and the fame game and the competition and the rivalry and all of that stuff. He breaks past that. He's not into that. Verse 6, it talks about humanity. He breaks past the humanity barriers. Verse 7 through 9, he breaks past the racial and the ethnic barriers. Verse 10 through 15, he breaks past even the life and the death barriers. Verse 16 through 19, he breaks past the sinful boundaries and barriers that prevented somebody from worshiping God. Verse 20 through 24, in the question and the conversation of worship, he breaks past the geographical barriers and he sets the stage that the Messiah is not only going to break past all of these barriers, but He's going to provide an avenue where somebody can worship God in spirit and in truth. See, when people look at this verse, we always get into that conversation of how. So it says, those that worship the Father will worship Him in spirit and truth. And we always start talking about, okay, what does that look like? How do we worship God in spirit and truth? But what people are not understanding is that this conversation was never a question of how. It was a question of where. It was not a question of how do we worship God. It was a question of where do we worship God. And the where is in spirit and truth. Let me explain. She said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say in Jerusalem is the people, place where people ought to worship. So the Samaritans were worshiping God at Jacob's Mountain. And the Jews were worshiping at the synagogue in Jerusalem. Right? The Temple Mount. So you had a question of where this group of people thought you worship God over here. And this group of people thought you worship God over here. And Jesus says the day is coming and now is when those that worship God will worship in spirit and in truth. So it's no longer a question. It's not a question of how do we worship God? Because you've heard people say, well, when you worship God, you have to get into the spirit and you have to get into the truth. And that's how you worship God. As in, that's a methodology and studying out what that means. But it's a question of where. Does that make sense? It's not a question of this is a new method to worship God. It's a question of this is a new location to worship God. And it goes beyond a physical location of traveling to the Temple Mount, or traveling to the mountain in Samaria. It goes to a question of now we're worshiping God in the truth, the son of God, we're worshiping in the spirit, the Holy Spirit, and they abide in us. So it's no longer we have to go here because here is already here. Does that make sense? I know that that's kind of a play on words. So the question of where do we worship God is right here, right there, wherever you are is the place to worship God. If you're in spirit and in truth, does that make sense? So it's a question of where, not a question of how. It's not a new methodology that we have to study and figure out and break down and look at the Hebrew and the Greek words here. It's not a question of that. It's a question of location. And the location is wherever you are, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, the same well of living water that Jesus was already talking about, and the truth of God abides in you, then you can worship God wherever you are because the Lord God is looking for those people to worship Him. He's looking for the people who find Jesus, get that well of living water that can have peace that passes all understanding, joy unspeakable and full of glory, that have Jesus and know that Jesus is all that they need. They can worship God whenever, wherever, however they want to because they are in the Spirit and in truth. That's the question. That's the answer. That's the whole focus of this is the paradigm is she comes into contact with Jesus. Number one, she doesn't know how to worship or where to worship because she's a Samaritan. She's not allowed in the synagogue and to the, especially not into the uh, actual court area because she's a woman. She's definitely not allowed in the inner court or the Holy of Holies because she's not a priest. She's not a Jew. She's not a man. So she can't do any of that. But Jesus changes that whole paradigm by saying That the hour is coming and now is. Now I want you to look at this. This whole thing has been set up for this next statement. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And this next verse is one of the most powerful verses in the whole Bible. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Meaning, the very Christ that you're waiting on, the very Messiah that you're looking for, that everybody's talking about and everybody knows will come, I am the one. So, this whole conversation of the one who's coming, who's going to change all of these paradigms, who's going to shift all of this and break all of these boundaries, he's already here in the form of Jesus. And so, the good news for us, because we're looking at this and we're like, okay, that's great, but what does this mean for us? It means that it doesn't matter. Your past doesn't matter. This morning doesn't matter. Yesterday doesn't matter because Jesus makes all things new. So it doesn't matter what your social background is or even what your social standing is now. It doesn't matter that we're human and that we're frail and that we're weak and that we make stupid decisions and that we make mistakes. It doesn't matter that daylight savings time caught us left sided and we're exhausted. It doesn't matter that we're holding our eyes open like this in church. It doesn't matter what race we are or what ethnicity we are or any of that because the Jews were so prominent on thinking they had a monopoly on God because they were Jews. And Jesus shatters this by even having this conversation with a Samaritan woman. And he goes further to shatter this when he says, you don't know what you worship. Salvation is from the Jews because the Messiah came through the Jewish lineage. But then he says, but the hour is coming and now is when the whole paradigm has shifted. It doesn't matter that you have a sinful background. We all do. I do. Everybody does. It doesn't matter. We we kind of make this ladder of saying this sin is not as bad as this sin is not as bad as this sin is. And so we think, okay, well, I told a little lie. That's pretty bad. But it was a white lie, so that's not as bad. (laughs) Or... You know so-and-so made me mad but you know I only punched them in the jaw in my mind I didn't do it in reality so it's not as bad culturally maybe but sinfully no it's just as bad so we think and we kind of create this kind of hierarchy of sins well my sins not as bad as theirs so really I'm okay and we kind of almost create and we set up this balance you know, you guys know what the old school scales looks like where you have the piece in the middle and on each side you have a plate. And if this side weighs more and so you'd have little weights to see how something weighs. So we kind of create this balance. And so we'll put our sin on one side and it's pretty ugly so it weighs it down. But then we'll try and heap up some good deeds or think positively about ourselves to kind of like even that scale out a little bit. And are like, well, see, I'm not as bad as I am good, really. But the truth is, is if we actually looked at that in a true perspective of what holiness and goodness is, the sinful side would crash through the floor and break the scale. Because we sin every single day, hundreds, if not thousands of times every single day. You know, it's a popular evangelism tactic. But did you know that the average person has 20,000 thoughts a day? That's a lot, 20,000 thoughts a day. (laughs) Now imagine this, if just three of those thoughts a day were sinful, 365 days in a year, that's over 1,000 sins a year. So if you only sin three sins a day, that would be over 1,000 a year, that would be over 70,000 sins if you live to the age of 70. That's a lot. So if I'm 28, about to be 29, so we'll just say 29, and that was true of me, then in my lifetime, I've committed over 29,000 sins. But I can honestly tell you I've had way more than three sinful thoughts a day. I can honestly tell you, especially before knowing Christ, that I had a lot of sinful activity in my life. You guys know my testimony. I was a drug dealer, abusive, alcoholic, junkie, etc. But I had an encounter with Jesus, and it changed my life. The only thing that takes this scale, and doesn't just even it out, but it takes our sinful side and just throws it to the wayside, forever paid for, dealt with, no more, non-existent, is the blood of Jesus. So if we keep this balancing act up in our mind, then we're living with a law mindset. And we're saying, okay, I've got to make restitution for my sins and for my iniquity. And that's impossible. The only thing that makes restitution for our iniquity is the blood of Jesus. And if we go beyond that, then we're trying to add to Christianity. When I mean, you can't add or take away from Christianity without doing away with it completely. So when he says, I who speak to you am he... What he's saying is, I'm the one that can break those boundaries. I'm the one that can go beyond the social, the geographical, the sin. I can go beyond the race and the ethnicity. I can do those things because I am changing the paradigm. It's no more about a location. It's no more about a skin color. It's no more about an ethnicity. It's no more about a legal system that you have to be circumcised into in the flesh. It's no more about that. What it's about now is about spirit and truth, about coming into a relationship and a contact with Jesus Christ and allowing Jesus Christ to change everything about who we are. That's what the system is changed into. And I want you to look at this verse right here. Skip all the way down to verse 39. Because we look at this and we look at this woman who had nothing going for her. She was a woman, she was a sinful woman, she was a sinful Samaritan woman. That right there completely disqualified her from anything to do with God, at least in the Jews' mindset. But verse 39 says many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus, believed in Him. Because of the woman's testimony. So the woman who had nothing going for her, who I guarantee you because she had had five husbands and the person she was with then wasn't her husband, had a bad reputation in that town, still was able to convince many people in that town of Jesus so that they believed on Jesus because of her testimony. See, a woman that had nothing going for her came into contact with Jesus and it changed everything about her. And that's what I want for every single person here. And I know that, I know most of you, so I know most of you know Jesus. But just because we've encountered Jesus once doesn't mean that we can't encounter Jesus again and encounter Jesus again and encounter Jesus again. Because truthfully, we should be daily encountering Jesus. We should be daily coming to contact with Jesus. Jesus should be the heart and soul of our life because otherwise... We're just existing. If you think about life where you get up, you get ready, you go to work so that you can pay your bills, so that you can go to work, so that you can pay your bills, that's that's an existence, that's not a life. So that you can occasionally, you know, once a year take a vacation, or occasionally, you know, a couple times a year have a party or ha- have a cookout or whatever so that you can kind of celebrate. So you work your high in off so that you have a little bit extra so that you can spend it on a celebration that lasts like an hour or two. That's not, that's not living. That's existing. But Jesus gives us a well of life in us that our existence begins to have purpose. Our purpose for existing is to make Jesus known. And so if we don't have that purpose, then we're just day in, day out, day in, day out. And it really doesn't add up to anything. We live, we work, we eat, we sleep, we die, and it's over. Or we live, we still work, we still eat, we still sleep, but we come into contact with Jesus, and then everything has meaning, and everything has power, and everything has hope, and we know that once this life is done, That there's a much better eternal weight of glory waiting on us so that we can look at these light and momentary afflictions that we face and know that they aren't even worthy of being compared with the glory that awaits us. That's the choice that's set in front of every single one of us. We can exist or we can live. And I've tried the existing. I'm much more interested in the living. Amen. Amen. All right, if you would, I want to do uh, something real quick. I always want to open up an opportunity for anyone that needs prayer. So what I'm going to do is I just want to pray. And if you need prayer for anything, then I want you to come up and I want to pray over you. If not, when I finish praying, I'll close out. And we have uh, pizza being delivered and a couple people that are going to be baptized following service. So, you're welcome to stay around in fellowship, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for this message, and I hope that in some small way, Lord, that it was significant. Lord, I hope that in some small way it was able to penetrate boundaries or barriers that we have up in our own lives, and that in some way it was able to bring life and health and healing and hope to people in this congregation. Lord, I pray, God, that you would touch each and every single person here, and even those that aren't here, but will hear this message later, that they might encounter you in a new and a fresh way. Lord, whether or not they already know you or are meeting you for the first time, Lord, I pray that It's a powerful encounter that forever changes the course of their life. Lord, we honor you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.